This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 6, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Bitcoin has already made some people wealthy, but for the rest of the world, the cryptocurrency may open up opportunities for the poor and oppressed to engage in business, save for the future, and help their families in other countries. Tim Lee is a reporter at the Washington Post Wonk blog. We talked about some of those possibilities today. Bitcoin has opened up a lot of opportunities. And uh, when you just compare Bitcoin to, say, credit cards or Western Union or some other service that moves money around, there's a lot to recommend it. Yeah, I think that's right. So there's, there's a couple of things that, that make it attractive. Um, one is that the core Bitcoin system has very low fees. Um, in many cases, you can send uh, money around the world with no fee or um, for a, a lower percentage usually than um, what you can with a credit card system or Western Union. Um, the, the other thing that is very attractive about it is it's a, a kind of a global open protocol, much like the internet, like the internet's core protocols, where Bitcoin works the same anywhere in the world. There's no, you know, if you want to get a credit card merchant account, there's all this red tape and bureaucracy you have to go through to get a bank to agree to let you take big, uh, credit card payments. Nothing like that exists with Bitcoin. It's just a, a piece of software like the internet where you just sign up and you start using it and nobody has the power to tell you uh, how to use it or whether to use it. So uh, with respect to something specific like Western Union that exists, I assume, all around the world, mm-hmm. um, they charge quite a bit to move money. They do. So yeah, I mean, you'll see, um, you'll see, uh, it, it depends on where you're sending it and how much and so forth, but you can see three, five, eight percent um, charges in, in those kind of ranges. Um, and it's very easy to imagine a Bitcoin-based system um, that would be much more affordable. What, one of the reasons is that because Bitcoin is an open protocol, um, Anybody can uh, create a, bit, a service to either send or receive Bitcoins. And so it's much easier to have a competitive market. With Western Union, um, there's just maybe Western Union, maybe one or two other, you know, MoneyGram. There's just a few companies that have the global footprint it takes to provide uh, service to send money from any place to any other place. Um, with Bitcoin, you can have lots of individual things that help at each end, that help you get Bitcoin at one end and sell them back at the other end. And each of those can be very competitive markets. Um, one of the things we've we've seen recently happen is you see um, the, a, a new market for Bitcoin ATMs. Um, the first one opened in, in Vancouver late last year, and there are plans to open dozens and probably hundreds of them um, around the world this year. Um, and so this, this gives one easy way people can do. They go to a Bitcoin ATM, they feed some cash in, get Bitcoins out, send it to their friend in another country, and then they do the reverse operation. And because there can be lots of different people running Bitcoin ATMs, the charge they fee- they charge uh, can be much lower than you'd pay for a centralized system like Western Union. Now, uh, Western Union is a money transmitter, and those are regulated at the state and federal level. What are the hurdles for Bitcoin to really function within the United States? So at, at the federal level, it's not too bad. I mean, there's some some rules where the um, if you want to be a money transmitter, you have to collect certain information about your customers and report to the government if you see um, certain problems. Um, I think the big biggest problem for building um, Bitcoin-based businesses in the United States is that uh, each state has its own separate regulatory regime. Um, often you have to put up a lot of money. Um, often you have to, um, there's a lot of 
you know, red tape you have to go through, you have to hire lawyers. And the, the traditional regulatory regime assumed that a money transmitter was a bri- brick and mortar store like a Western Union store, where that, that money transfer would be in one state. And so you'd have one set of state regulations to comply with. Um, but with Bitcoin, you can have one startup that serves all 50 states simultaneously. And theoretically, that means that if you want to do that, you have to comply with 50 different regulatory regimes. And it becomes very unwieldy. Um, and it's something that um, really makes it hard for a small business that's trying to just um, get off the ground. Um, it's very hard to go to a venture capitalist and say, I need $5 million just so I can fill out a bunch of paperwork and post a bunch of bonds with various state regulators. Access to credit for the poor uh, around the world is spotty, but access to cell phones and wireless networks is quite a bit better. And when you think about a country like Iran or very country poor countries in Latin America and Africa, it seems like this might be a good system for the poor to use to essentially track their own purchases and exchange with each other. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Bitcoin is global in much the way the internet is global. Um, and traditional banking systems are national in much the ways that traditional telephone systems are national. And so you can, you can imagine the same kind of um, transition where rather than having national markets where dysfunctional governments um, are uh, you know, are screwing up the local banking system. There's one global banking system where anybody can use the the banks or the the Bitcoin financial institutions of the countries that have the best regulatory regime and the strongest economies. So people in um, in uh, Nigeria or something can use American banks or uh, Swiss banks or whatever, um, and that can protect them against um, you know rapacious local officials that you know try to to take kickbacks from them from corrupt banks that uh, you know nationalize people's currencies or um, inflate away their currencies and so forth. One of the concerns that I've had uh, when we think about the the blockchain, which is a relatively transparent accounting of basically every large Bitcoin transaction and even small ones, uh, is how governments will make use of that information. Some of that is to the good because you have people who are caught engaged in uh, bad illegal things, uh, but at I'm also concerned about how the government might use that around the world. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely a reason to be um, concerned. I mean, so it's it's kind of a weird situation because the the information about which addresses sent money to which other addresses is public. Anybody can get that information. The question is which human beings are attached to each of those addresses. And right now, there's no um, at least no official way to make that connection. Um, but you can certainly imagine the world's governments will be very anxious to have that happen. And so this is a, what a lot of the regulatory regime is focused on. Um, if you want to buy Bitcoin from a, a kind of legitimate source like um, Coinbase here in the United States, Coinbase will collect your identity information and have it on file. So then if the FBI wants to know who made this Bitcoin current transaction, if it was a Coinbase customer, they'll be able to co- go to Coinbase and say, give me the identifying information. Um, but I'm not sure that this is, I mean, so this is something to be concerned with, but this is how the traditional financial system works. Anytime you send money, um, you have to have that. And so it's certainly no worse in terms of privacy than what we have now. Um, and it's still the case that there are still other ways to get Bitcoin. So there's um, there's a website, I think it's called Local Bitcoins, where um, you can do uh, face-to-face transactions with people. Um, it's not totally clear if, if this is legal or not, but certainly it's it's very hard to regulate. And so, it, if you, I mean, Craigslist. Yeah, exactly. Right. So anybody, way. I mean, if you find anybody who has bitcoins, you can make a bitcoin transaction with them, and it's going to be very hard to trace. So anybody who really needs financial privacy. I think can can get it by using one of these alternative means. It's going to be a little bit more of a hassle, but I think it provides kind of a safety valve. You know, if you have cases, um, and this is especially important in, in um, countries like Iran or um, where 
that you have a repressive government. Um, if you want to say say you're a dissident and you want to create a blog outside the United States and pay for it, um, you should be able to go out in the streets in Iran somewhere, get your hands on some bitcoins anonymously, and then use it to do things that your government doesn't want you to do um, much more easily than you could if you had to use like a credit card, which is much more centralized and much more easy to track. At least in the United States, we've seen this sort of uh, scrutiny on large transactions. So mm-hmm. in the United States, if you're if you're engaging in transactions that are ten thousand dollars or more, that triggers automatically a bunch of paperwork. Uh, we've even seen cases of people arguably uh, purposefully going under ten thousand dollars, which is itself somehow illegal. Right. Um, so is that a problem? And it, does Bitcoin like create problems in that regard? Well, so I'm I'm not sure that um, in in theory. So Bitcoin. One of the interesting things about things about Bitcoin is the fees related to Bitcoin and the sort of the way it works is not based on the size of the transaction. So theoretically sending, you know, 100,000 Bitcoins, which is worth like $100 million, is the same few pennies that it costs to send like one or 10 or $100. Um, the, the issue though, I think, is that um, once you get the $100 million at the other end, um, because as we were talking before, the, the list of all the transactions is public, if you start spending that money, Every, every person who gets that money, you're going to be able to, the feds are going to be able to figure it out if it ends up sort of being in the legitimate market. And so it's, it's hard to imagine somebody sending that kind of money without it eventually being traceable if somebody really wants to. So I think what it does is it creates an additional roadblock for the authorities. It's not as easy for them. They can't just go to Bitcoin Incorporated and say, who did this $100 million transaction? Um, but I think it's still possible if the authorities really want to figure out who did it, um, they'll probably be able to figure it out. Bitcoin transactions are famously irreversible, mm-hmm. but it seems like a lot of the infrastructure that's being built around Bitcoin now is going to accommodate a whole host of, of different uh, uses, and, and like, for example, insuring and reversing transactions. Yeah, this is a very young market. I think in the long run, like so. Irreversibility is nice for the merchant because one of the things merchants hate about credit cards is you get a payment and then later the customer claims it was fraudulent or says their package didn't arrive or whatever and gets a reverse. So it's great for merchants that that never happens. But of course, the flip side of that is as a consumer, if somebody hacks your computer and steals all your bitcoins, then your bitcoins are gone and that's not good. And so, yeah, I think there's probably going to be another layer of software that uses Bitcoin as the underlying um, architecture, but provides consumers with some of the um, protections that they've come to expect. Um, I, I think that hasn't really happened yet. I mean, there are people, there, there are kind of theoretical products out there, um, but none of them, I think, are user-friendly enough that it really, would really make sense for consumers to switch from um, traditional uh, vehicles like credit cards to this. Um, but the, the thing about Bitcoin, and again, this is something that makes it very similar to the internet. Um, if you look back at the internet 20 or 30 years ago, it was also very unuser friendly. It didn't have very many features. But the thing that made it really powerful is it was this open, very general purpose platform on which you can build other things like the web, like YouTube, like Facebook. Um, and so um, we're, I think we're just at the very beginning of that process where people are just experimenting with the technology, figuring out how to make it work. Um, in the long run, I think you probably will see people build services like that. Tim Lee writes at the Washington Post Wonk blog. You can subscribe to this and other Cato podcasts at iTunes and at Cato.org.